This past week, as I was realizing, wow, I've already got my message prepared for Sunday <laughs> with us canceling Christmas morning, um, I had to, to work on the, en- the intro because I'm like, well, that doesn't work because I prepared that for Christmas morning. Um, I came across these two quotes, and one of them happened to be on a t-shirt. And before you groan, let me just read it. The t-shirt says, do what makes you happy, but the happy is striped through, and underneath the happy, it said, holy. So the shirt says, do what makes you holy. And when I first read it, I'll admit, I go, well, wait a minute, only Christ makes us holy. And I sat with it, and I go, well, yes, Christ makes us holy. Christ is our righteousness. However, we are commanded to be holy as he is holy. And so I was like, okay, I like that. Another quote that I came across is, what you believe is what you do. We're going to kind of focus on that part this morning. Barna, which is a uh, pole company, Christian poll company, talks about a worldview. They define a worldview. And their definition says, according to Barna, a worldview is something that everybody has. Most people don't even realize it, but essentially it's just the decision-making filter that we use. That is worldview. It's the intellectual, emotional, and spiritual filter that helps us to understand and interpret and respond to every reality that we experience. In 2021, Barna had a poll that shows and reveals that 51% of American adults claim they hold a biblical worldview. 2021. However... When Barna gives them the true definition of what it means to have a biblical worldview, do you want to guess what that number changes to? I hear 20, I hear 25. Six. Six percent remain. Why is the way we think so important? Why does having a biblical, a true biblical worldview matter? Because what you believe is what you do. What you hold, what you, how you see the world will be how you act in the world. What you believe is what you do. As we begin this morning in Philippians 2, we need to remember that in the original text that we were given, there were no chapters or verses. We translators have put those in as reference points. And so this entire letter to Philippian, the Philippians was just a letter from beginning to end. And while we're starting on chapter 2, verse 1 this morning, this really is a continuation of where we left off two weeks ago. Where Paul is giving instructions to the Philippian believers to only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Two weeks ago, and while that seems like a lifetime ago, it was last year, in fact. Last time we saw Paul unpacking the first principle of what it looks like to only live as a Christian, only as one worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And we saw last time that he unpacked that this looks like unity among believers, which includes standing firm and having one mind. Today, we're going to look at the second part of this this statement, this instruction, this principle, if you will, of only living as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it begins with the way we think or worldview. We're going to continue our study in Philippians. Hopefully you've had time now to open your Bibles to Philippians. And uh, so as you have your Bibles open, let us pray and begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, uh, we thank you for the past year with all its ups and downs. We thank you for the many blessings. We thank you for how you are leading this church, your people, and how you are drawing lost souls to yourself. Lord, we pray that as we enter this new year, beginning this morning, Lord, that you would continue to do what only you can do. And that you would continue to draw your church, your bride, to yourself. That you would ignite the Holy Spirit in each one of us, individually and corporately, Lord. That we would go and make disciples of all nations, including here in our own town. And that you would help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would continue to be the light that shines in the darkness, Lord, that you would wake up this lost world and help us to live bold and courageous lives for you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, starting in Philippians 2. We'll be reading verses 1 to 11 this morning. You can follow along in your own Bibles. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Paul starts out uh, this part of his letter to the Philippians with kind of these four conditional statements. Uh, They almost sound a little bit rhetorical when we read them. He says, so if there... Is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love? The if there statement would be appropriate to apply to every single one of these. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. It's an if-then statement. It's a conditional statement, if you will. 
he gives four of these statements. And as we unpack these, you'll see that these are actually good tests for the body of believers to answer, to wrestle with. The first statement is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, this word encouragement means calling near, comfort, exhortation, or admonition in Christ. And he's addressing the Philippians, the believers, right? So he's saying, if there is any comfort, any exhortation, admonition, anything encouraging in Christ, right? And so that leads us to the question, do you, do we, do I find any encouragement, any admonition, any exhortation, comfort in Christ? Only you can answer for you. Only I can answer for me. The second one, is there any comfort from love? This love is that agape love. The word comfort can sometimes be translated consolation. Do you, do we find any comfort from agape love, selfless love, self-sacrificing love? If there is any participation in the Spirit, this participation word we've we've, uh, unpacked already in in Philippians, this is that koinonia word. It is that uh, participation, it says threefold, right? Participation by a shared experience. Fellowship by a shared life. Giving by shared goods. That's what koinonia is. And Paul is saying, if there is any participation in the Spirit, meaning, is the participation, the fellowship, the giving Spirit-led, or is it man-led? Is it agenda-driven by man, or is it surrendered to the Holy Spirit? Is there participation in the Spirit? He says, and if there is any affection or sympathy... This could be rendered tender mercy and compassions for others. Do you, do we, have any affection and sympathy toward others? And he says, if these are true, if these tests are positive, if it, the, these good positives right here, right? Not like COVID positive, right? Like, if these prove true, Then, so here's the then statement. He says, then, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This this idea of having the same mind literally means like the same opinions on things. To think the same way. Literally, the same mindset on things. World view, how you view the world. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same world view. To also complete his joy by having the same love. This speaks to unity again. To love each person as Christ loves you. Sacrificially. Says, complete my joy by being in full accord and of one mind. Literally, this uh, full accord and one mind literally mean translated would be fellow sold. Fellow sold. 
Not like S-O-L-D, S-O-U-L-E-D, right? Sold. It describes a total agreement and attitude. It says, complete my joy by having the same worldview, being in unity, loving each other as Christ loves you, to be fellow sold, total agreement and attitude. And then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Essentially, uh, he says, act this way. So not only have this mindset, but behave this way. Act out this way. He says, don't do anything from selfishness, from selfish ambition or conceit. The, the, literal, the literal word there means vain glory or self-glory. To do nothing that would glorify yourself. We're to act this way. To not, to not act in vainglory. We are then to act in humility. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So we're not to do anything from selfishness, from conceit, from even selfish ambition. And we are to act in humility counting others more significant than ourselves, to look out for the well-being of others as well as yourself. He continues in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's that, that... Have you heard this same word a couple times by now? Mind, mind, same mind, have this mind. Paul is trying to get us to understand that what he's saying. In fact, this statement, have this mind, is a verb that is used 26 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 23 times in his letters, and 10 of those 23 are in this letter to the Philippians. This idea of having this mind describes the realm of the mind to think, to have an attitude, to develop an attitude based on careful thought. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which speaks individually, person to person, but also corporately as a body. Now, you have to remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to these new believers in Philippi, remember, that is in Greece, which is a Roman colony under Caesar's rule and reign, where they have Roman citizenship. And he says, you're to have this mindset, this worldview, not Roman's worldview, not Caesar's worldview to have this worldview, to think this way, to have these thoughts. And he says, you're to have this mind among yourselves individually and corporately, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, there's much debate on what Paul means by this specific part of his letter here, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But it seems to point to the thinking or attitude which was found in Jesus Christ, the way Jesus thought, which is ours, because we are in Christ Jesus. 
which would then imply that as his disciples, we are to and supposed to reproduce the same thing. Because that's what discipleship is, is to be like Jesus in every way. And you might say, well, how do I know what this looks like? How do I know if I'm living in humility? How do I know if I'm loving selflessly? Why should I even think about living this way? Well, because Jesus is our example. And as a disciple, we are in every way to be just like him. Because that's what discipleship is. That's what being a disciple is. It's, a, it's an apprenticeship. It's, it's being just like the master, being trained by the master to become the next master, basically, is the, is the concept. Not that we can replace Jesus. Don't misconstrue that. The idea is that we are becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And everything we say, we do. It ought to be a reflection of Jesus. Paul then goes to one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture found, starting in verse 6, where he's now saying, you're supposed to be like this, you're supposed to live your life, think this way, which is available to you in Christ Jesus, and then he describes everything about Jesus. He says, who though... He was in the form of God. Jesus was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now there's a lot to unpack here, and you may feel like I've been kind of going at warp speed through the, through the text. This is... This is the component here. Though he was in the form of God, reveals that Jesus always was, always is, and forever always will be God. It speaks to his pre-existence, existence, and for eternal existence. Though he was in the form of God, speaks to that Jesus was God before the world began. Before creation was. This is doctrine. The word form means to have the true exact nature of something. Possessing all the qualities and all of the characteristics. So when Paul says that though he was in the form of God, it literally means that Jesus has the same exact nature of God himself because he is God himself. But while he was in this reality, this, this form of God, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's wrestle with that. This word grasped can be translated as seized or retained, held on to. And it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto or seized. What is this equality with God? It's talking about the form of God, the, the true nature, the, the exact nature, 
possessing all of the qualities and all of the characteristics and comparing that to the form of a servant, which we're going to get to here in just a second. This equality with God, Paul is making a comparison that Jesus in his preexistence made a decision that when the time came, he was going to be obedient by surrendering his qualities, his rights that he had in his deity. I have to be very careful how this comes out, and I'm not great with English. Jesus did not surrender his deity. He surrendered the privileges of his deity by coming into a baby, form of a baby. That's what it means by the form. Like he left the form, the privilege, the, the nature of God by being born in the form of a servant. The form is the, the descriptor here, the thing we have to understand. The pre-existent Jesus had no reason to leave his father's side other than for the love of his creation. Now we're going to ramp it up a notch. So, though Jesus was pre-existent, he did not count this equality with God a thing to be held on to but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And I'll admit there is enormous amounts of debate among scholars on what Paul is talking about with this statement. The literal meaning of this word emptied is to remove the content of something. However, in our scriptures... This word, this word the, the original word that is translated here as emptied, is not ever used literally. It's always used figuratively, which means to cause to be without. Without results or effect. So as Paul is using it here, it describes taking away the prerogatives or the status or position Eliminating all privileges. Jesus clearly didn't give up his deity. Rather, he gave up the appearance, the form of his deity, and took on the form of a slave, a bond slave. Notice how he empties himself, by the way. He empties himself by taking on. Usually when we empty something, we pour out, we give up. But in this case, Jesus empties himself by taking on the form of a bondservant. It's taking, which is an addition. And this word servant literally means bondservant or, or bought slave, bought with a price, bondservant. Not someone that was just born into slavery, but someone who sold themselves into slavery or was sold into slavery. That's a bond servant. And it says that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, a bond servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Jesus gave himself 
for the sake of you and I, for the world. He humbled himself in human form by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul, remember if we're we're looking at the context of what Paul is writing to the Philippians, he just told the Philippians to not act selfishly out of selfish ambition and conceit, but to do everything in humility like Christ. And now he's explaining what that looks like in the ultimate example of humility. He says he humbled himself, he being Jesus, humbled himself in human form by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate example of self-chosen humility. Even to death, even in the most shameful death on a cross. We don't often focus on the anguish of the cross. Or maybe we focus more on the anguish than we do the shame. Right? So often, Jesus is portrayed as having a loincloth on while he's hanging on the cross. But in historical accuracy, he was probably stark naked, ripped to shreds from the beating that he took, and hanging on a cross for all to see. It was deemed the most shameful way to die because it was a deterrent for bad behavior. It was meant for people to see that and go, I don't ever want that to happen to me. And so it was the Roman way of ensuring peace and going along with the rules. And yet Jesus, in his preexistence, decided to obey the Father's will when the time came to take on the form of a bond servant, being born in the likeness of men, giving up himself in humility, even humility to the point of the shameful cross. This is the example that Paul is saying for believers to follow to be like. That even though Jesus, in the form of God, had every right to stay in heaven with his Father, with all of the the privileges that came with staying next to the Father's side, chose to surrender those rights and privileges to fulfill the mission of rescuing the world. Even though he knew the cost. Even though he knew what it meant For himself by taking that form. And Paul says, like Jesus did, you too are to act in humility. You too are to surrender self sacrificially as a disciple of Christ. Paul continues in verse 9 and he says, Therefore, and anytime you come across a therefore, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? What's the therefore, therefore? Paul is saying, therefore, since this is true, since Christ did these things for you and for us, since Christ emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant and being born as man and being found in this human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I missed under the earth there. So it should be every tongue confess uh, that every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Christ's self-chosen humility, God the Father highly exalts him. Which gives us this example that all who follow Jesus, all who are true disciples of the Savior, must live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Jesus is the example. We too, then, must live selflessly and with humility, with humble love towards one another. But not just towards one another, towards the world, our community, the lost, those who would reject Jesus. We're to live selflessly and with humble love even to them. But there's good news that in this, what feels like the heaviest sacrifice and the heaviest burden, because I don't, I don't know about you, to, to, like, to live this way, the, to, to live selflessly and in humility all of the time, just grates against the grain sometimes. Because there are certain situations that are really hard to live that way. But I'm thankful for the example of Jesus because if we are to, in every way, be like Jesus and live the way that he did, and God the Father lifted Jesus up this way, we too will be lifted up with Jesus one day. Whether he calls us home or comes back again. We too, in our devotion, in our selflessness, in our discipleship, and in our following Jesus as Lord and Savior, in all that we say, all that we do, in all of our interactions, as we fulfill the great commission and the great commandment, it will be hard. But we too then will be lifted up with Jesus. And that's good news. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for our time this morning in your word. Lord, this is a beautiful passage of scripture. And there's, I, I admit there's so much more to unpack in, in much deeper detail 
Lord, I pray that uh, what was shared today was clear uh, and that would resonate with us, with all who hear. Lord, this year as we look forward, we look forward to a year of transformation, personally and corporately. Lord, for too long, you have, your church has been asleep. For too long, we have not taken the Great Commission and the Great Commandment personally. And Lord, your call through Scripture is for every believer to take both of those seriously every day of their life, to make disciples, to teach them all that you've commanded, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to love you and to love others. That is the mission of the church. This new year, I pray that we would be led by you in all that we say, all that we do, how we love our world around us so that you, Jesus, would be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen.